It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 239. It is our September 2023 research review. And if you haven't listened to one of our research reviews, what we do here is we cover three or four brand new papers that have come out in some of our favorite journals. And we talk about the background information, like why is this important and what's the lay of the land? We cover the paper in some detail and then how to interpret it. And so if you don't like scientific research, just turn off the podcast. We, we already got, we already got paid the ad money from the intro thing. So like, just, you know, you just turn it off. <laughs> that uh, laughter you hear on the other side of the uh, audio is Dr. Austin Baraki, the second most handsome doctor in North America. What's going on, dude? Hey man, I'm doing okay. Recovering from a little little cold or something or other, but I'm here. I'm all right. I think you had a lactate cold is what you had. Maybe from just getting smoked on the rower. Dude. Yeah. You were telling me about that workout, just brutality. Dr. Miles is a former competitive rower and he's been writing a few things for me to do on the, on the rower. And, and, uh, the past two, I, I, as we've discussed in the conditioning series, do harder interval stuff infrequently once a week or less. And the last two that I've done have been pretty brutal. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. When you told me that, I go, nope. It was like, what, 250 <laughs> meter repeats on a, would you have eight, a, oh, yeah, you had eight, eight of them, but then what was the rest repeats. period? The rest was like, uh, it was like right minutes. around like either around two minutes, 230, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the stock workouts like built in there. It's either 250 with a one minute, one minute rest or two minute rest. I forget. But even when like during the CrossFit experiment back in the day, I remember that mm -hmm. was one of the workouts I did. And I was like, Nope. Once the, uh, once the tracheal burn sets in, that's when you know you're having a bad time. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, there's purpose, there's a use for that, that go into the well, those hard sort of conditioning, whether it's, uh, you know, in that case is, uh, you're really pushing the anaerobic sort of threshold there, uh, or even some longer, hard aerobic intervals, it's useful, uh, but, uh, infrequently. And so you look, if you're wondering what we think about cardiorespiratory fitness and how to develop it, we just did a three part series on that. So would recommend checking those uh, episodes out. That's uh, 236, 237, and 238. And uh, we'll be writing something about that soon. Also, I just wanted to say while you're on the line. So yeah, we're, we got some ads running, you know, before and after our podcasts. And, you know, we've done 200 and well, this is episode 239, but it's really like 250 something episodes that we've published. And we had never really done ads before. The whole point is like, I don't, I don't want to edit these things anymore. Personally, I don't want to like, you know, spend the time doing that. One, I'm not an expert audio engineer. And two, it just frees us up to do more content. So yeah, you're going to hear some ads. And if you don't want to hear ads, we'll probably do an ad-free option where people can, you know, do some sort of like subscription thing. And maybe we'll record more things like Austin's, you know, eloquent discourse on ejection fraction in, in preserved <laughs> <laughs> heart failure, ejection fraction, heart failure, or something. I don't know. We'll do something. Uh, we'll figure it out. But yeah, it's new to us. And so I, we're not trying to monetize the internet here or do anything like that. It just, honestly, the podcast needs to pay for itself so we can just focus on the content, which is kind of what we've been doing the whole time with this brand anyway. We publish a bunch of free content, put a bunch of free stuff out there on the internet, answer questions. And then, you know, if people need more help, we'll do that too. But uh, I just don't want people to get alarmed and they're like, you, what are you guys doing ads now? You're selling out. It's like, I, yeah, mean, I, don't, I don't know that people necessarily realize the amount of time and work that it takes to go into even making a, a good podcast, uh, much less our podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Somebody asked on my, uh, oh, one of my Instagram, ask me anything. So they're like, Hey, how much 
time do you spend researching stuff? And it's like for each particular episode, depending on the amount of actual research there is out there, I'll usually spend, you know, five to eight hours reading stuff and then like rolling it around in my brain and coming up with an outline and stuff like that. But that's on top of the existent knowledge on something. And that's just me, one person. And so if you put your stuff on there too, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of prep here. Now we could just talk. And have no prep and just, you know, see where the wind takes just us. Just riff but for the... four hours like the other gurus <laughs> out there do on their podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get too sidetracked. But anyway, so I just wanted to say something about that so people weren't like, you know, like, what are these guys doing? Um, what we are going to do next episode, so it'll be episode 240, we're going to answer some of your questions. We haven't done an actual Q&A here in a while. And what we'd like you to do is send us an email, media at barbellmedicine.com. If you have a question, ideally the question is generalizable. So it's not just like, hey, I've got this hip pain, like what do? Uh, you know, something more uh, that would apply to a lot of different people. And uh, I will finally say this because I do these ask me anythings on my Instagram every week and I get very similar questions. Most of the time people will say, hey, what do you think about a particular content creator? And I'm not in the business of like judging people. Uh, so that's not my that's not what I would like to do. But if you have a specific question about something that somebody said, whatever the claim is and whatever the given supporting evidence or rationale, like include that in your question. Happy to weigh in on that stuff. But if you ask me a question like, hey, what do you think about so-and-so? I'm like, I, I don't know that I think about them that often. Usually, you know, unless, unless you want to say, hey, what do you think about Dr. Austin Baraki? I'm like, oh, hey, open it up. I'll, let's go. <laughs> so, yeah, that, again, that's media at barbellmedicine.com. Send us your questions. Um, might do uh, like a mailbag uh, sort of segment. Uh, you know, that, I think that's fun uh, for us to do and uh, allows us to interact with our audience. We're also on our forum. If you go to barbellmedicine.com, we have a free forum you can sign up for, ask questions. We're literally on it every day. People are like, where can we ask you questions? Like, we're literally answering questions for free on our forum every single day. So just, you know, do that. We've got a Facebook group. I think we're almost 20,000-something members strong there. And, uh, yeah, so we're, we're available if you go to the right places. Uh, let's see. What else? Uh, so, yeah, you talked about your training. That was uh, – apparently it's been going – breathlessly. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Things are, things are looking up at the moment. So just taking my time with it. It's all good. Uh, dude, I had my session today. So I had bench press. It was like my high priority, like bench press, comp bench, and then pause squats. And then, um, uh, behind the neck press. That was my I'm supposed to do the workout today. And I got about four hours of sleep last night. Uh, personal stuff, uh, pretty wee hours of the morning. So n sleep was compromised. And so I just kind of went in. I was like, oh, we'll just, as, you, as we do, see, where, see what happens. My last warm-up uh, for bench press was 365, and it was RP negative 3. And I was like, all right, we'll just go up to 405 and, and see what happens. The problem here, though, and I don't like doing this. I don't like benching on those commer the commercial gyms that have the fixed uprights, no safeties or whatever. Mm -hmm. But all the racks were taken, so I'm like – I'll just go with God here and uh, see what happens. But yeah, 405, self-liftoff, RP6, maybe. I don't know. It felt good. It was the first time I benched 400, over 400 since uh, the last shoulder dislocation. So wow. yeah. things, are, things are trending. That's a good feeling. And then a two-count pause squat, 235 kilos for a set of six. So that's, what was that, 518? So that mm -hmm. was fine. And then by the time I got to the behind-the-neck presses, I was uh, – I was a little tired. I was, yeah. I was very tired. But I did behind the neck press 82.5 for 10. So what is that? 180? I think uh, a little more than that. Maybe closer to 185. Whatever. Yeah. 
around that range. Is that, did you do it like the way that, uh, what's his name? Cloakoff used to do those presses. Is that how you're doing it? Like snatch grip or close? No, 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 no. Okay. So like, like the, the, the score, really the score, mar- <laughs> the, the score marks on the powerlifting bar are 31 inches from like neural to neural. Right. So that's where my pinkies were. So okay. it was just a, but still I did feel like a boss walking the weight out and then just, yeah. I don't know that I've ever really trained that movement in dedicated fashion. Maybe, uh, maybe if my elbow likes it, I'll, uh, I'll push into that. We'll see. Well, here's what I was thinking. So somebody asked me like why I was doing it at the gym, right? They came up to me and they like, they did the motion like, Hey, take your headphones mm-hmm. to tell me, why are you doing this? And I was like, well, in this particular slot, I wanted to do vertical pressing, like a vertical type press. Uh, I also wanted it to be lighter. So it wasn't too fatiguing. So the fatigue costs weren't that high. And I also wanted an added benefit of maybe some additional range of motion, mobility stuff for squat, the back rack sort of thing. And that's, so the behind the neck press kind of checked all those boxes. So I started, I think the first week I did them, I don't know, 60 kilos, 65 kilos Mm -hmm. or something like that. And just gradually been working up. And, uh, I don't know, I would like to behind the neck press 225. Of course. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I just don't know. How do you fail a rep? Uh, Do you just drop it behind you and get out of the way? Or do you just put it on your traps and rack it like a squat? Yeah. I mean, that's where I'm bringing it back down. Like just kind of a little, but I think it, (laughs) uh, yeah, because you don't have a spotter. I don't yeah. know, we'll see. Hopefully I won't miss. If I'm doing sets of 10, hopefully I don't miss. miss. And, then, and then squat it to make it look like you meant to do that the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a failed squat jerk attempt, yeah. so I just squatted it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> All right. So like I said, this is episode 239. This is our, 2000, our September 2023 research review. We're going to talk about everything from peaking for a powerlifting meet to fish oil supplementation and even uh, some pre-meal whey protein supplementation and how that affects uh, blood sugar and insulin levels. I would kind of run in the gamut here. We had some other options. Uh, maybe we'll get to, uh, the next month, depending on what gets published. Um, but yeah, let's, let's hop into the first paper. <clears throat> so this, uh, first paper is titled two days versus four days of training cessation following a step taper in powerlifters. This is published, uh, by Burke et al from Eastern Tennessee state. It was published August 25th, 2023 in the journal of strength and conditioning research. So a little background information here. Uh, Prior to major competitions, athletes often use a peaking protocol such as tapering and or training cessation in order to improve performance. In most sports, peaking for a competition refers to maximizing the athlete's abilities on a particular day, which is achieved through various methods. From a training perspective, bringing an athlete to, quote, peak performance requires a taper, which is defined as a progressive, nonlinear reduction of the training load during a variable period of time in an attempt to reduce the physiological and psychological stress of daily training and optimize sports performance. That's just a fancy way of saying reducing the sort of training stress on an individual in order to preserve the existent fitness adaptations while also dissipate the amount of fatigue that they've accumulated. Um, so there are a couple different ways to do this, a couple different models. One is called a linear uh, sort of taper. This is a gradual set amount of decreased load week by week, such as, okay, we're going to reduce training load by 15% every week. There's also an exponential model, which can be slow or fast, but there's variable training load reduction. So you might reduce training load by 60% one week, 40% the next week of the now lower amount or something like that. Then there's what's called a step taper. This is probably the most common where training load is reduced suddenly by a set amount. So, hey, we're going to cut training load by 50%. Uh, And then there's training cessation, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is literally stopping training. And uh, a lot of times there's a taper followed by training cessation. And that's kind of what this study looked at. 
The whole goal here, again, is to balance the preservation of fitness adaptations, so not letting strength decay in powerlifters, for example, while dissipating fatigue such that the existing fitness adaptations can be realized. Um, I think when we talk about training load, though, there's kind of like this question about, well, what does that even mean in strength training? It's easier to sort of quantify that in endurance training because um, you're like, okay, you're doing this uh, amount of distance, for example, so you can just reduce the distance. We're really just talking about volume at that point, which is not the whole story because intensity certainly plays a role here. Uh, but when we talk about training load in sort of resistance training, we're talking about the combination of volume, intensity, um, and those two things are the principal determinants of training load here. Uh, so there's not a lot of data on how to do this optimally for barbell sports athletes outside of reports and surveys of what people are doing in practice. There's a couple of sort of like surveys that have been taken. Um, probably the best data we have on this is a previous meta-analysis, I believe it's from 2019, of tapering procedures for athletes. These are either competitive powerlifters or they were non-competitive subjects peaking for a one RM test in the three lifts. This meta-analysis included 16 studies. Six were on competitive powerlifters specifically. Uh, and I think prior to addressing this particular paper that came out uh, last month, if we just restrict the analysis to the six studies on powerlifters, that kind of gives us a good lay of the land. So these six studies pretty much used either exponential tapers or step tapers. Uh, those are the most commonly used. And then one used a linear taper. Um, volume decrease ranged between 30 and 70%. And the duration for which the volume actually went down ranged from either one week to up to four weeks in some studies. The intensity adjustment with that concomitant volume reduction was all over the place. Three studies maintained intensity. Two studies decreased intensity, one by 25%, one by 5%, and another study increased intensity by 10%. So kind of variable methodology here. The average increase across these six studies uh, in the back squat was between 25 to 6%, so about 3.5 to 15 kilos the back squat improved. The bench press tended to respond favorably as well, going up by about 2 to 6.5%, so two to eight kilos. And the deadlift also responded favorably, going up by about four to 5% or eight and a half to nine kilograms. And that all uh, worked out to increase the total, which in powerlifting is the sum of your best back squat, bench press, and deadlift. On average, people were able to increase their total by 14 to 27 and a half kilos. So that's kind of the lay of the land. That's where we're starting from. Um, and again, just to recapitulate, uh, volume reduction just means reducing the amount of sets and reps that people are doing. Um, and it looks like that is kind of the principal determinant of the performance outcome, um, regardless of whatever taper method is used. So if volume goes down and intensity goes up, the actual training load may be preserved. So usually uh, the volume goes down and the intensity either is maintained. That seems to be the big, the most intelligent way to reduce training load. Uh, on the other hand, if volume goes down by too much, you might see strength decay. It's just not enough training stress to sort of either maintain or uh, further improve sort of performance. So 
going into this particular study, it looked like a 30 to 50% reduction in training volume was better than 50 to 70% reduction in training volume. And again, this taper can take place over multiple weeks. It looks like one to two weeks for powerlifter seems to be the sweet spot, uh, followed by a period of training cessation, so no training. And two to seven days of training cessation seems to be the sweet spot. Longer than that, again, people see strength decay. Shorter than that, they don't seem to bleed off enough fatigue to actually realize some of the strength that they had uh, previously developed. And then, of course, as we always say on the podcast when we're talking about programming, individuals are going to individual. So there's a lot of inter-individual variation. And I think before we pop into this study, Austin, do you want to comment on like your particular approach for tapering if you were either going to go to a meet or test your 1RMs otherwise? Like how do you do it based on your experience? Yeah, I think tapering is an interesting con- um, kind of topic in general. My initial exposure and experience with it was in the context of swimming. And in that context, we definitely saw just absolutely massive variation between people on the team in terms of how they tapered. I think that, you know, when I got up to the highest level that I ever competed at, what we tended to observe and what our what our coaches would kind of do by default prior to much of an individualization phase is that like the the bigger, heavier guys who tended to be more on the sprint dominant end of the spectrum, they often interestingly got a bit more of a a, a, a taper length and a more significant drop in their training volume. Whereas uh, the smaller athletes who tended to be more of the distance guys and then the um, smaller women on the team tended to maintain their training load much higher, much further into the meet. So I remember, you know, a lot of times everybody would be jealous of the sprinters who'd be starting to chill out uh, much sooner towards the end of the season before, before competition. And then that would be kind of the the default um, approach. And then it would be kind of individualized and further tweaked there from there based on how people performed. And so, you know, you're right that we do a similar kind of individualization process when we're working with people from a powerlifting standpoint, I think you'll probably hear a lot of similar kind of paradigms in terms of maybe making some educated guesses based based on people's, you know, what exactly they're competing at, say, in the realm of powerlifting, maybe based on their body type, body size, based on their subjective reporting, things like that. To what extent that is uh, valid and reliable, I kind of get a bit of a shrug from that. Um, But I wouldn't be terribly surprised if somebody who is a much smaller athlete who tends to be lifting relatively lighter absolute loads is able to maintain a higher training load closer to competition compared to somebody who's, you know, routinely squatting, you know, a thousand pounds or higher. But that's just a a, a semi-educated guess, (laughs) I suppose. Um, And so in my own training, I think that I don't really fall at either end of those extremes. And so I definitely, in my own training, would have a bit of a taper, but it was probably uh, longer earlier on in my career uh, or competitive career and training career when when I thought that I needed more of one. And then I think the evolution, even as I got stronger and was lifting heavier loads, was actually to taper, relatively speaking, less and take less time and maintain my training load a lot closer to competition than I thought I should earlier on. And I think it might have just been our influences early on, who we listen to, things like that. So I think in general, I tended to, I think that, you know, once you're adapted to training at relatively high training volumes, you actually get better at handling those things and you can handle them closer to competition without being super smoked by the time a meet comes around, as long as you have the requisite practice with singles and things like that. Yeah. The way I kind of view it is that I would prefer to have almost the shortest taper necessary because that gives you more time to train and get better. Whereas if you have to take really long taper periods, it's almost like you're losing the ability to get better, the opportunity to get better because you have to take so much time tapering. Um, that said, you know, whatever works best for the individual. And I think that's dynamic over a career. 
Yeah, just you use it and you just do deal, uh, play the hand you're dealt. But uh, yeah, in general, I think the squat and the deadlift require a little bit longer taper, whereas the upper body stuff and in general things that are trained with more frequency, higher volume, et cetera, maybe a shorter taper. And so it's it's unlikely that they're all going to look the exact same as far as the protocol and the training cessation period, whether it's two days, one day, three day, four day, five day, a lot of that's personal preference. And again, I think it's going to vary by the lift, but we're going to cover some data, some experimental data here and see if we can't make heads and tails of this thing. So this particular study's goal was to compare the differences in maximal strength, perceived recovery and stress state, and body composition in strength athletes undergoing a two-day or four-day period of training cessation following a step taper. So the study was done in 10 young powerlifters. The average age was 22. The average body weight was 94 kilograms. So uh, like, what is that, 206, 207, 207 pounds, something like that. Their average squat was just under 440. Their average bench press was just around 300 pounds, not just like 300 pounds. It's a good, it's a good bench press. Just, I don't want to minimize anybody's 300 pound bench. I'm just saying, uh, and their average deadlift was 218 kilos. So what is that? 480 pounds, something like that Four seventy-eight, something like that. They did a six-week powerlifting-specific program where they trained three times per week. Weeks one through four, they basically did three-by-three three, uh, on all the comp- uh, competition lifts, so the squat, the bench press, the deadlift, and then one set of five afterwards. Um, they squatted twice a week. They bench pressed three times a week. They deadlifted once per week, and they overhead pressed once per week. Every week, they would go up about 5% in relative intensity. I believe it started around 77.5% and then went up to 82.5%, then 87.5%, and then whatever. That's weeks one through four. After week four, at the end, they tested their 1RMs. That's kind of how they got like, okay, here's where my 1RM is now. Let's see, does this taper and training cessation actually juice my 1RM? Week five, they did this overreaching week where they did 150% of the volume that they had done on weeks one through four. So instead of doing three by three, they're doing uh, six sets of three. And instead of doing one set of five, they're doing five by five. So volume went up significantly on week five. And then week six, they cut volume down to 50% of what it was. So half of what it was on week five. They did a single and then they did uh, three sets of two on the main lifts and then lower uh, volume for some of the accessory lifts. The last week that was that uh, step taper. Then after that, this sort of experimental condition here was did they take, what happened if they took two days off or four days off after their last session and then tested their 1RM? So that's kind of what the study set out to find. What's better, a two day or four day period of training cessation after this step taper? They also tested body fat using uh, bioelectrical impedance. It's not the best, but it's you know you can use it. That's how they tested body fat. And then they did uh, they tested strength via a mock powerlifting meet. So they didn't go to an actual powerlifting meet, but uh, they were like, look, you either got to go to an RP ten or a failed attempt that was less than two and a half kilos greater than the previous successful attempt. And they said they did all of the uh, repetitions to USAPL standards. Um, they also tested, uh, like I said, stress and recovery via a short recovery stress scale, which is known as SRSS. This is a survey with four items relating to recovery and four items relating to stress. They would, uh, the individual would rate uh, kind of how they felt about each item um, from zero to six, where zero did not apply at all, or six, it fully applies. 
So physical performance uh, capability was one of the sort of recovery uh, items, and it's like they described it as being strong, physically capable, energetic, full of power. So like they were asking the individuals to rate how they felt right then compared to their best ever recovery state, which is kind of a weird way to do this, but okay. Can you, and can then, you think specifically of when that moment was in your life, best ever recovery? I don't know that I can. Yeah, your best recovery. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, I don't know when I had my best meat total yeah, ever, but yeah. like I can't really, that was almost <laughs> 10 years ago. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, and then for stress, um, again, it was uh, basically how they felt right then compared to their highest ever stress state. And so for like muscular stress, they, they describe that as having muscle exhaustion, muscle fatigue, muscle soreness, muscle tension, which I looked up to try to see if this was validated towards to any particular sort of thing. I couldn't find that. There's also no like uh, minimally clinically important, minimal clinically important difference to sort of rate like, hey, if there were changes in this SRSS thing, like what's the smallest amount that actually matters? And yeah. I couldn't find that either. Big surprise. Okay. As far as the results of this study, there were no differences in body composition, whether that's the amount of body fat, the amount of muscle mass, body weight. None of that was difference between a two-day or a four-day training cessation, which is what you would expect. It's just not a big enough difference of like not training in order to make a difference. If we were talking about two days or four days versus 10 days or 14 days, I would actually probably expect a difference at that point, um, usually just due to loss of water um, that's sort of generated from exercise in general. Uh, so I would actually expect it'd be like an artifact, like a loss of lean muscle mass or lean body mass just because you lost some water. But I wouldn't actually expect a decrease in muscle size after 14 days of not training unless somebody was on bed rest or like violently ill. Yeah, or, sick. Sure. Yeah. Uh, as far as changes in the SRSS, that stress recovery uh, sort of uh, itemized questionnaire, there were no differences there. So good, we don't even have to address, <laughs> like, hey, what does this mean? Um, as far as the back squat goes, it improved in both groups, but the improvement from the testing after week four to the testing after the uh, period of training cessation was not statistically significant in either. The four-day training cessation was the closest to statistical significance. They, on average, went from a 205-kilo uh, pre-intervention squat to 214 kilos, so like a nine-kilo improvement. Um, whereas the two-day training cessation only went from 190 to 197, um, but just wasn't statistically significant. The bench press increased after the two-day period of training cessation and actually decreased after the four-day period of training cessation. So in the two-day training cessation, uh, bench press 1RM went from 127.9 kilos to 130.6 kilos on average. And in the four-day sensation, it went from 142 kilos on average to 135.5 kilos on average. So it actually went down. And both of these were statistically significant. And uh, finally, the deadlift increased only in the four-day uh, period of training cessation. It went from uh, 220, uh, 213 to 221 kilos. Um, and that was uh, statistically significant, whereas in the two-day uh, training cessation period, it went from 223 to 224 kilos, so just a kilo, and that was not statistically significant. As far as my interpretation of this, yeah, it's kind of what I let in with uh, earlier. Not all lifts respond to training cessation and the taper at the same time. Um, I think that, again, in general, the bigger lifts, the squat and the deadlift, 
as far as the amount of muscle mass being used and the amount of absolute weight uh, being used tend to require a little bit longer period for a both the taper and the training cessation. Um, although again, there's gotta be inter-individual differences. Those who train with more volume, more frequency, uh, et cetera, likely respond to a uh, shorter taper and shorter period of training cessation. Um, but you can even apply that just to the lifts themselves. In general, powerlifters will train the bench press more often they train the squat then they train the deadlift. And so I think using that heuristic of the more you train something, the shorter the taper and shorter the training cessation period should be, that applies to the bench press. So the bench press taper should be started later compared to the squat and the deadlift. Um, and then also have a period of training cessation that is shorter in general in time. I'd also say that if somebody didn't do a taper, like did not do a preceding taper, then the period of longer training cessation might work just fine meaning that they didn't actually cut volume like going into the quote, you know, that last week of the meet. In that case, you know, you're just training as normal. Well, heck, maybe a four-day or five-day period of training cessation would work just fine because you weren't actually reducing training load leading up to that. And when you look at the data on training cessation on sort of strength performance, it kind of, that's really what's supported there. Basically, if people have not really tapered prior uh, to a test, then a longer period of training cessation seems to work a little bit better. Uh, but in any case, the way I do this, like in practice with my lifters that are going to meets or testing their one RMs, um, I usually do that sort of last, what I would call a meaningful training session, like five or six days out from the meet. Usually they're working up to openers or something that's around 90% for a single on their squat, uh, maybe their deadlift, depending on the individual and, uh, probably a little bit heavier on the bench press and a little bit more volume. That's like five or six days out. And then about three days out, they might take the last warm-up on their squat and still bench maybe their opener. And then two days out from the meet, they'll do some their bench press, their last warm-ups, for example, and then two days of training cessation. But the deadlift training cessation happened four or five days out. The squat training cessation happened three or four days out. And then the bench press training cessation happened one or two days out. That's sort of my general kind of guideline here. And if you actually look at, we have a bunch of peaking templates that are available for free they're like four-week training blocks to get people ready to test their 1RMs or go to a meet, just freely available. I'll link that in the description below. You can download those for free on our website. That's how they're all set up, pretty much, uh, with different sort of tapering practices based on whether or not somebody's a, quote, fast peaker or a slow peaker. And the way I would kind of differentiate between the two is like the person who's going to need more time to peak. So a slower peak is the person who's lifting like really heavy weights tends to maybe overshoot their RPs on a regular basis, <laughs> or like they're going to RP nine, for example, they use a lot of hype. The, the training, the training sessions are fairly stressful, uh, in that regard. Whereas the person who probably responds to a faster sort of peak, uh, they train at lower, uh, or sorry, higher proximities to failure. So RP seven, most of the time, for example, they don't use a lot of hype. They don't overshoot their RP and they've been training for a long period of time with relatively high volumes of training. So they're just used to that. They don't really need a long protracted taper. Those are just two sort kids, of general I think, guidelines. I think the, uh, the kids call that staying in the pocket, those staying in the pocket. <laughs> yeah. Those, yeah. Short taper. <laughs> but, but you're going to have to adjust based on the individual. I think like with Claire, for example, uh, when we went down to, um, the uh, the the NAPF championships down in Grand Cayman. She did her last bench press session the day before her meet, and it was just her last warm ups. But she, she doesn't need a period of training cessation because she benches so much, you know. But her last squat session was four days before the meet, and her last deadlift session was six days before the meet. 
And I can think of times where you would otherwise extend that further. If somebody was dealing with maybe like some low back sensitivity or whatever, their last deadlift session might be 10 or 14 days before the meet. Not because that's optimal, but it's optimal for that particular context. You know? The other interesting thing to think about is the the role of like kind of um, technical proficiency and skill. And powerlifting is admittedly not a sport that demands a great deal of that, even though people like to make it so. But if you compare it to competitive weightlifting, for example, um, and the way that weightlifters approach both their training in general and like tapering for a meet and stuff like that. And you see all these training hall videos of them like doing effectively training sessions like at the meet, um, you know, to keep grooving those kind of much more technical movement patterns that they have to be able to do. I remember, you know, from again, days being in the pool, like a couple days, you know, completely out of the water around that time, you start to, you know, feel different when you get back in, it, you know, it's commonly said that you feel like you're losing your feel for the water or something like that. So being in and just moving, even if it's not, um, you know, high intensity work to maintain that um, can be useful. So I think that's another element that can be considered in other sporting contexts for how much exposure um, you should maintain leading up to a, to a competition. Because, uh, you know, the technical demands of a deadlift are not that high. And so there are people I remember, I think you did like a, a podcast interview. This was a couple of years ago now, but um, I think it was like with that uh, Jordan shallow guy or something who's like, I took my, I used to take my last deadlift a month out from the meet. And you're just like, hold up, what? <laughs> like, are you serious? <laughs> and some people do that, I guess. And so uh, you can get away with that a bit more, I think, in powerlifting uh, compared with some other sports that are much more demanding on the technical front, I think. Yeah. I mean, you want to be sharp for the meat, right? And so what I think about if you're sort of undercooked, we'll say, so you just, <laughs> you have, you haven't had a lot of training load, a lot of training volume or whatever, for whatever reason, whether you've been limited training time, you've been traveling, you've been dealing with injury or whatever, you just haven't been doing a ton of volume. Uh, I, I think that training closer to the actual test date is probably better because you, if you sort of take it way down, back everything way off and there's a long period of time, you just get dull right? You remain undercooked. On the other hand, if you're overcooked, you've been doing a lot of training load, uh, a lot of volume. Um, and you know, you could be actually benefit from the longer period of training cessation. Um, that's what you would do to get sharp for the meat. It's just, it's a balancing act and it really just depends on what the training has looked like most recently. Uh, and then also there's this sort of psychological aspect that is just like, what's going to make you feel the most confident going into the meat? You know, if you feel like, I think I'm learning, I'm forgetting how to squat. Well, <laughs> you know, I can <laughs> present all the science in the world. I can reassure to the best of my ability, but it might just be worthwhile to have a squat session where you go in, you know, two or three days before the meet and you do 80% of your opener for a couple singles, just, you know, to get sharp and feel confident. Um, on the other hand, if you're more like, Hey, I feel sore, I feel beat up still. I just, uh, I don't really want to hit this last session you have programmed. That's fine too. It's just kind of like that last week just tends to be more dynamic, uh, depending on how the person's feeling and, and their sort of subjective feedback. So if you're a coach and you're taking people to a meet, you're prepping them for a one RM test that actually matters. I think having sort of, um, open lines of communication where you can adjust things on the fly based on the response. I think that's that should be part of your job rather than like, here's the program, do it. Call me after the meet. Like, I just, I don't think that's the best way to go about things. Yeah. Can you, th what, do you have the, like a story from like the weirdest peak that you've ever done? Uh, I don't, 
I don't think I've done anything particularly radical or unconventional. I mean, it's not like, I, you know, I think about um, phases of training that I've done where I was like working up to a, you know, a daily single or something like that. Um, not that that's like super radical, but would do that like on the bench, for example, for a defined period of time. And then maybe I'd hit a, you know, a, a new PR or something towards the end of that, like limited phase, which would be admittedly unconventional if you were like prepping for a meet and you did just like daily SBD singles all the way into the meet or something like that. That'd be weird. But I know, I know one person I worked with, I had her squat a single every single day, the squat every day program up until it was two days before a meet. She's just stopped. Yeah. And then I had another client bench every day. It's just stopped two days out from a meet. And it's like, well, these are relatively unconventional sort of training protocols. But uh, because they were so used to that and that, like, was working for them, I was like, I want to keep giving them this opportunity to get better. And, like, yeah. And at that point, you've just – you're generating so many fitness adaptations uh, compared to the amount of fatigue that I'm not really worried about bleeding off fatigue as much as I am, like – Keep, keep pushing the gas on those fitness adaptations. But uh, pretty cool paper. Normally you don't see like something that's super powerlifting specific. Uh, and I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. So shout out to, uh, to Burke and, and colleagues from Eastern Tennessee State. And uh, if you want to check out the paper, I've linked, the, uh, I've linked that in the description below along with our free peaking templates. You can take a look. You can take a peek at those. You see what I did there? That was, that was pretty good. Dad jokes yeah, you on need to insert a little drum roll or whatever, whatever you call it, rim shot sound effect. Rim shot, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. The second paper we're going to talk about is titled... Whey protein pre-meal lowers postprandial glucose concentrations in adults compared with water. The effect of timing, dose, and metabolic status, a systematic review and meta-analysis. Okay, just again, as far as titles go, that's a lot. That's just a lot. They're like, we want to be so specific that there's no doubt as to what this actually actually means. But in any case, this was published in the July 2023 edition of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition by Smedgar et al. Uh, okay, so let's give you guys a lay of the land here. Uh, first off, 
we're talking about giving people whey protein before a meal and seeing what that does after this test meal with respect to blood sugar excursion. So like, does blood sugar go up, higher, lower? Does it stay the same? What happens? So that we call that the glycemic response. And so basically that's a fancy way of saying like, what happens to blood sugar after we eat a meal? Okay, so what is the glycemic response? Well, many foods contain carbohydrates, which ultimately supply energy to the cells in our body. Once ingested, once consumed, carbohydrates are broken down in the gastrointestinal tract into simple sugars like glucose. The small intestine absorbs this glucose into the bloodstream for transport to the liver and subsequently around the body. As blood glucose levels rise after this absorption, insulin is produced by the beta cells of the pancreas. Insulin then facilitates the transport of glucose and other nutrients from the bloodstream into cells like muscles, organs, and fat. Hooray, we've made it into a muscle cell and other cells too. Uh, also, it should be noted that insulin suppresses the production of new glucose, new sugar uh, by the liver, and that's known as gluconeogenesis. So insulin kind of slows that down and instead promotes the storage of glucose in the form of glycogen, and that's called glycogenesis. Also uh, increases the formation of fat, which is called de novo lipogenesis. These serve as both short and long-term stores of energy, respectively. Okay, so that's the glycemic response. Basically, you eat some food that's got some carbohydrates, then what happens? Well, blood sugar goes up after you absorb it, and then insulin is released in order to deal with that, and subsequently, blood sugar goes back down. Let's talk about normal glycemic response versus abnormal or pathological glycemic responses. So uh, the normal blood sugar ranges, uh, it varies by the type of test that you're doing on an individual and the timing in relation to a previous meal. In general, a normal fasting blood sugar is between 65 to 99 milligrams per deciliter. And that's usually, we consider it fasting if someone's been, has not eaten anything with calories in it for the last three hours. Although if you are getting like labs done, you're getting your, you know, a lab test done, most uh, labs will want you to be fasting overnight before you show up to those. So like an eight to 10 hour fast, but a fasting blood sugar uh, is usually at least a three hour sort of fast. Um, in healthy individuals without diabetes, blood sugar after meals typically range between 100 to 140 milligrams per deciliter. It typically peaks about 30 minutes after a meal and then goes down. Blood sugar levels greater than 140 are uncommon in healthy individuals without diabetes. It does appear that regularly going over 180 milligrams per deciliter, as far as blood sugar goes, uh, after a meal probably represents a blood glucose level that's consistent with unwanted outcomes that we would see normally with type 2 diabetes, for example. This is also associated with what's called a renal threshold or renal splay uh, that happens at about the same blood sugar level, 180 milligrams per deciliter. Austin, you want to tell people what renal splay is? Yeah, it's um, a phenomenon where, <laughs> just thinking about how how important it is that people really grasp this, but you know, it ties into the history of diabetes, I suppose, that once your blood sugar gets high enough above this level, um, our kidneys, which are normally 
kind of uh, equipped with the uh, machinery to reabsorb sugar that gets into our urine so that we don't waste precious glucose. Um, if this, if your blood glucose gets much higher than that, then it kind of overwhelms our kidneys ability to uh, reabsorb that and, and keep it for ourselves. And then the blood sugar ends up getting spilled out into the urine. And the reason I tie that into the history is that way back, apparently people used to diagnose diabetes by tasting patients urine um, and it was sweet. And that would be because well, they, they I, I would say that their their sensitivity uh, to diagnose diabetes was a bit worse than ours is now because they would only catch the worst cases because it would require them to be this high before their urine would get uh, would become sweet, um, and that's that's kind of the the phenomenon that that's being described here. What do you think? Like when the test came out to actually measure the amount of sugar <laughs> either in the blood or in the urine without having to taste it, the experts like, what do you were think? like, oh, "I'm out of a job." <laughs> Yeah, no, they're, yeah, right. They're like, like AI's coming. Like it's, that's their, <laughs> or they were like, they don't do it like we used to. And that's they're right, like, they right. think they're missing diagnoses. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we were not doctors back then that, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's I physical probably... exam nostalgia, which I already get annoyed by, but uh, physical exam nostalgia taken a bit too far. <laughs> I think. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and this ties into our previous discussion on continuous glucose monitors, um, because people, particularly individuals without sort of metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, or some other abnormal sort of blood glucose or glycemic issue, uh, people will be wearing these things and they'll see their blood sugar 20 minutes after a meal, 30 minutes after a meal, 40 minutes after a meal. And they're like, oh, well, it went from, you know, 99 to now it's 130. That's that's bad, right? Because it went up. Uh, it Look, these small excursions don't really mean anything. That, particularly if they're, you know, within a, quote, normal range, which we think is 100 to 140. And if it gets in that 150, 160 range for a small period of time, that probably doesn't mean anything either. If it's regularly over 180, well, hey, now that's a different story. That's sort of like that critical threshold. Uh, and that we would consider that a large excursion in sort of blood sugar after a meal, postprandial, referring to the after meal period. But those large excursions are also picked up by better validated screening tools, whether it's a random non-fasting blood sugar test, for example, uh, oral glucose tolerance test, for example, a hemoglobin A1C, which basically looks at your red blood cells and sees how much blood, you know sugar has stuck to them over the last three months or so. Uh, we have all these tools that can sort of tell you like, hey, do you actually have abnormal blood sugar on a regular basis? You don't need a continuous blood glucose monitor to pick those excursions up, but rather people are wearing these blood glucose monitors and they're like, but it went from 99 to 130. And that's, that's a big change. It's like a, you know, it's a large number. And it's like, no, it doesn't really correlate to better outcomes to keep it. Oh, it only goes to 110 versus 120, or it only goes to 120 versus 130. It just doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. But people like are making these mountains out of a molehill, you know? Yeah, this is a scenario where I think because we are able to measure something, then the measurement itself becomes the focus of people's attention rather than the reason we're measuring it. And to your point, the kind of issues with blood sugar excursions, these kind of increases and decreases that we see, we really only care about people's blood sugar insofar as it impacts their health outcomes, right? I don't care about the number itself unless it's way too low and causing symptoms like you're having a seizure or way too high and you're going into a coma. But short of those extreme scenarios that are not super common out in the world day to day, more common that I might see in the hospital setting, for example. But short of those, we care about people's blood sugars because of the long-term impact that it may have on their health over the course of months, years, decades. And the excursions, the ups and downs of blood sugar that tend to impact those outcomes 
we have a decent sense of what those excursions look like in terms of how high it needs to go or how long it stays high for beyond, say, a two hour mark. But if your blood sugar goes up after a meal and then it promptly comes back down within two hours back into normal range, that is a reassuring sign of like pretty good endocrine physiology that you have going on. A failure to return back to that normal resting level within a couple hours is a, sort, is a sign of concern or shooting way up higher than we would expect a healthy individual to go, say it shoots up to 200 or something like that, I wouldn't expect that either. Um, to your point, we do have other diagnostic tools. All of them have pros and cons. All of them have you know imperfect sensitivities and specificities and all this other stuff we've talked about on previous episodes and the same with, with CGMs. But when you know, I, I get concerned that people who are um, really obsessing over these measurements, they get this idea that like they will be healthiest if their blood sugar curve is like a flat line over time, like to never, never let it move at all, which is, you know, if, if there were evidence, um, that allowing your blood sugar to rise from 90 to 110 had some measurable impact on health related risk, it's like, okay, well, you're welcome to fight for that last, like 0.001% of risk reduction. If you want, if there's something measurable, but we do not have any evidence to show that, letting your blood sugar go up into that range or significantly higher still and letting it normalize as is expected with normal physiology, um, that that, you know, drives any kind of unwanted health outcomes. And so if you're obsessing over it, then all this is driving is unnecessary health anxiety <laughs> instead. Yeah. And it, it is not for lack of evidence here. I mean, there are literally millions of patients who have been wearing continuous glucose monitors that have been part of large data sets. And we look at like, hey, what is a reasonable excursion in their blood sugar that correlates to the best outcomes? Meaning like, you know, risk of type 2 diabetes development, risk of heart disease, uh, risk of, you know, other untoward outcomes. And it's like, yeah, look, we just don't, that data, it doesn't exist. We're showing that, hey, keeping on this really narrow, tight, flat blood glucose level is better for health. And it gets even worse when you go to different outcomes, like what about performance? It's like virtually no data on this supports an optimal blood sugar level in competition or whatever. And even some sports, it's banned. Like the UCI, you, you know, is like, hey, you can't use this. It's turn, turning cycling into Formula One. You, this is illegal. It's banned. Uh, and yeah, as you mentioned, risk of disordered eating, unnecessary restriction of certain foods, cost, et cetera, and then for what, right? And, and I'm specifically talking about the use of glu uh, continuous glucose monitors in individuals without diabetes, without metabolic syndrome, without uh, some sort of abnormal blood sugar response to eating, for example. Uh, there are also other ways that we can modify what happens to blood sugar after a meal, so modifying the glycemic response. So for example, you can adjust the meal composition itself so you, if a meal, for example, has higher amounts of dietary fiber, that slowers, that slows down gastric emptying, so how, how quickly the food moves from the stomach into the small intestine, which also then uh, slows down how much glucose is dumped into the small intestine at a given time, which slows down glucose absorption into the bloodstream. And so if you have a slower rise in blood sugar, well, that modifies that postprandial or post-meal glucose response. Uh, you can give protein or increase protein in a meal, for example, which actually increases insulin release. <laughs> it's insulinotropic. It increases the amount of insulin being released from the beta cells of the pancreas. And if you increase the amount of insulin that is released from the pancreas for a set amount of sugar in the blood, what's going to happen to the blood sugar? Well, it's going to go down. And people are like, only carbs increase insulin or whatever. It's like, no, nah, protein does it too. 
So just heads up. And that's actually one of the ways that it goes to lower uh, blood sugar. Uh, Austin, you want to talk about kind of the addition of protein in a, into a meal and how that kind of affects glycemic response? Yeah, any further? I mean, that's that's kind of the subject of this of this paper. And whey, whey protein in particular is a good one. It's rapidly absorbed and the branch chain amino acids that it contains, isoleucine, leucine, and valine. And there are a bunch of other interesting bioactive components uh, that are peptides like beta lactoglobulin, alpha lactalbumin, a bunch of others. These both stimulate insulin release directly and rapidly. Um, this is important. I'll come back to this a little bit later, this concept of like the first phase insulin response. Insulin is typically released in two phases and there's an immediate response within like two to five minutes of eating a meal. And that can help to kind of put the brakes uh, on quickly with blood sugar rise. And then there's a second slower phase that happens subsequently. And that helps to restore normal blood sugar, you know, by that say two hour mark, for example. And this can act really rapidly um, in terms of stimulating that first phase response, which is actually quite important in the kind of the pathology of, of diabetes. Um, and so that not only directly stimulates insulin release, but also augments this phenomenon called the incretin effect. Um, the incretin effect is the effect of some of the hormones that people have heard us talk about a lot in other contexts like GLP-1, which is mimicked by some of the medicines that we inject at super therapeutic doses like semaglutide, ozempic, Wigovi, all the things that people have been hearing about. And GIP, which is another lengthy name that I don't need to go through, but um, that's the one that is also targeted in addition to GLP-1 by medicines like terzepatide and some of the newer ones that we talked about on some, some recent episodes. And those serve multiple roles, including in the brain, as well as um, altering kind of gastrointestinal motility, the movement of things through the stomach, gastric emptying, and they also augment insulin release even further. And so all of these things promote a healthy, um, robust insulin response to the meal immediately. And that can serve to minimize that excursion and return things to normal in quicker order than they would otherwise. Yeah. Uh, similarly, if you increase the fat content of a meal, that's very similar to fiber in that it reduces the absorption rate, basically slows down how quickly sugar can enter the blood. Uh, on the other side, if you increase the calorie load of a meal, that means you're eating more food. Well, you're, you tend to have more carbohydrates and just a larger load that could potentially increase blood sugar. And so in general, the higher the calorie load, the more robust the blood or higher the blood sugar tends to go. But again, that can be modified by how much protein's in the meal, how much fiber's in the meal, how much fat's in the meal. It also depends on when's the last time you ate and what time of day. It is. There's this whole, we did a whole episode on chrononutrition with Danny Lennon. And that's the idea that, you know, if you eat the majority of your calories earlier in the day, for example, you seem to have more favorable um, uh, insulin dynamics and lower uh, excursions in blood sugar. It's like the exact opposite of the tra traditional intermittent fasting approach where you save all your calories to the evening. And so if you were going to make a, a case for time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, you would consume most of your food during like the daylight hours and then eat relatively little at night. Although this all goes out the window when you talk about training or exercise in the evening and in individuals' normal metabolic function, so not having metabolic syndrome, not having type 2 diabetes, uh, something like that, it just doesn't matter, right? And so it's like, but if you were going to make a case for intermittent fasting being sort of uniquely health-promoting, it would be in individuals who are either at high risk of type 2 diabetes or similar, and it would be the exact opposite of how most intermittent fasting sort of protocols are set up. Most intermittent fasting protocols, you fast till noon or one, and then you eat high calorie meals until you go to bed or something like that. Like your, your eating window is 1 p.m. to 9 p.m. Well, I would just flip that 
on its on its head. I would say, oh, maybe like 7 a.m. to like 4 or 5 p.m. And then you eat relatively little before bedtime. But that doesn't really work with most people's schedule. But if you were going to make a case, that's kind of how you would do it. Uh, sleep, not only the amount, but also the quality of sleep can also affect people's glycemic response. In general, when you see uh, people who are sleep restricted, they have more uh, variable and higher in general uh, blood glucose excursions than if they had been sleeping the appropriate amount uh, with high quality sleep. Um, activity can also make a big difference. Uh, the more active people are, and if they're active in that postprandial period, so after a meal, that tends to lower blood sugar uh, in general. And uh, illness can also have a profound effect on people's blood sugar, uh, particularly if they're in the hospital. So if they're seeing you, Dr. V, People's blood sugar can be highly variable and, and elevated far higher than we th would say is normal. That's just sort of an almost uh, adaptive response to being sick. It's like, uh, we need to feed the, the immune system. We got to deal with these, you know, this sort of illness. Our metabolic rate's turned up. We need higher blood sugar. And that's kind of allowed to persist rather than trying to control it tightly. Because when you do control it tightly, worse things tend to happen. Yeah, things get way more complicated. Sometimes, I guess, in some ways, you could say it's adaptive. In other ways, it can be pathological too. And but controlling it is a different. It's an art form in a hospital setting, and that's definitely one of the things that I do day to day. And we have actually research where it's like, yeah, controlling people's blood sugar better, making it look prettier, like you want it to when people are out living in the world. Yeah, people die more when they're in the hospital, and you do that. So we actually tend to be a little bit more liberal with people who have diabetes and let their blood sugars run a tiny bit higher um, than than we would um, otherwise for somebody who's healthy. You know, healthier, not critical ill or acutely ill in the hospital, but in an outpatient clinic, for example, we tend to be a little bit more controlled because that's going to contribute to problems developing over, uh, you know, years and decades of exposure to that blood sugar. Whereas hopefully if they're in the hospital, it's a pretty limited amount of time where they're not going to be sustaining a ton of systemic damage from, you know, a relatively short period of these um, elevated blood sugars, particularly when we know we could harm them if we got them even lower. Yeah. So the TLDR is that there is a sort of difference between normal and abnormal sort of glycemic responses, so blood sugar responses to eating a meal. And this particular study looked at, well, what happens if you give people whey protein before they eat a test meal? Does it adjust or alter the blood sugar response at all? And if so, how? And is there some sort of dose-dependent uh, relationship between the amount of protein they get and the amount of blood sugar sort of reduction? So let's get into the study. So this is a systematic review and meta-analysis reviewing all randomized controlled trials where one group got pre-meal whey protein within an hour of the test meal, and they compared it to a placebo. And this was all done in adults with uh, different metabolic conditions. So they either had metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, uh, they were individuals with obesity, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or gestational diabetes. And these are all just conditions where we expect or we predict abnormal blood sugar responses to eating a meal. That's kind of the definition of having um, uh, one of these. So there were 16 studies. They were all randomized controlled crossover trials, which means that the person served as their own control. Basically, they did one test where they got way before a meal, and then on a separate day, they got the same test meal, but instead of getting way before it, they got water. Uh, they were all short-term. And the total sample size included in this systematic review and meta-analysis was 244 subjects. Okay, the results of this meta-analysis. Whey protein before a meal reduced glucose concentrations after the test meal by an average of 1.9 millimoles per liter at 30 minutes. That's a 
reduction of uh, blood sugar by 34 milligrams per deciliter, uh, or at 60 minutes, a reduction in blood sugar by 1.4 millimoles per liter, which is 25.2 milligrams per deciliter. So before we move on, yo, that's a lot. I am down with that. I would take that. 10 out of that 10 is, times in a patient. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like if you could lower somebody's blood sugar, particularly if they were set up to have abnormal blood sugar responses, and that's what you're really trying to fix via either medication and lifestyle change combined, and you can just give them way before the meal and you see this big of a reduction, oh boy, that's pretty cool. It also seems to happen in healthy folks, so those without sort of type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, et cetera, but it's a smaller effect but still present. Um and so as far as how this w- happened, yep, we know that whey protein seems to be insulinotropic, which means it causes an insulin release. So you got more insulin on board, blood sugar is going to be controlled a little bit better. Uh, they also had higher GIP and GLP-1 concentrations with whey pre-meal, although this wasn't statistically significant. And just as an aside, yeah, we talked about the anti-obesity medications um, that use supra-therapeutic doses, high doses of GIP and or GLP-1 it doesn't seem like these sort of hormone concentrations without giving people a ton of it like actually matters. And so if we're talking about like dietary pattern changes to increase GLP-1 signaling, we're like, eh, it doesn't seem to really matter, but this might be one smaller mechanism at play. But the big mechanism here is just raising insulin, it seems like. Um, there was no difference between whether the protein was given like directly before the test meal, 10 to 15 minutes before the test meal, or 30 minutes before the test meal. They could just, as long as they got it beforehand, they seem to have this preserved sort of response. But there was a dose-dependent response. So some of the doses were as small as like 5 grams of whey, and other doses were as high as 70 grams of whey before a meal. And you're like, wow, if there was a robust, reliable effect, what you would expect then is that the higher dose should have a much more market effect. And that's exactly what we saw here. There's a dose-dependent relationship. The more way that people got before the test meal, the lower their sort of resultant blood sugar was. Um, as far as, again, why this works, so the interpretation of like these results, yep, it looks like way slowed down gastric emptying. So how quickly food content moved from the stomach to the small intestine. Some of that's due to just the preload effect Right, so you had a you had something before the meal that is occupying part of the stomach, and then the stomach pretty much readily empties into the small intestine if there's like nothing in the way, and not I'm not making a pun here, nothing in the way. But if you give people whey protein beforehand, well, now you've put something in the way to slow down that sort of gastric emptying. So that thing happens. Uh, also seems to. Uh, Uh, sort of directly stimulate that first phase insulin response. And I think that's worth kind of diving into. Austin, you want to talk about the different phases of insulin response here and how this This is kind of what I was alluding to earlier. There's this immediate within the first couple minutes of eating a meal insulin response, this kind of sharp, again, I really hate to use the term spike because it's become so like pathologized in the conversation around this, but it is a physiologic rapid early increase in insulin levels that helps to, again, slam the brakes on that uh, early blood blood sugar rise. And then it's followed by a more delayed second phase response. And the reason this is particularly important is because it's been described how the loss of the, of the first phase insulin response actually has a lot of relevance when it comes to kind of like early signs of people developing, progressing into diabetes. And also, perhaps even more interestingly, interventions that can successfully restore first phase insulin response seem to have um, good effects at being able to put diabetes into remission. 
And examples of those are people who are put on, for example, brief, short-term, very low-calorie diets leading to like rapid early weight loss, which can help to you know get rid of some of the accumulated fat that's become deposited within the pancreas, uh, can help to limit both the effects of what are called lipotoxicity, so toxicities from the blood uh, lipid of uh, the lipids and fats that have become deposited in the pancreas, as well as the toxicity of glucose itself on the pancreas. So having high blood sugars itself is toxic to the pancreas, and so limiting those things early, for example, by early aggressive weight loss around the time when diabetes or insulin resistance is detected can, in some situations, restore that first phase insulin response. And in people who get that kind of restored, regained, they have the best outcomes in terms of putting their diabetes into remission. And so this is not to say that just take, you know, taking a shot of whey before your meal is going to put your diabetes into remission on its own. Um, but it can, it is uh, pretty promising that it can stimulate this first phase response um, uh, uh, pretty, pretty rapidly and can aid in controlling blood sugar responses, which would, again, to reiterate, have the most benefit and utility in people with, you know, type two diabetes, insulin resistance, and is not something that people with healthy physiology need to be worrying about. So if you have, you know, lean, healthy, no diabetes training, whatever, you don't need to worry about if you take your way before you eat some rice or vice versa or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, when I first saw this meta-analysis, I was like, oh, that's interesting. It probably works by reducing energy intake at the test meal. Because most of the time these test meals, sometimes it'll just be like, hey, we have this, look, it's it's fish, it's fish, rice, and, and something else. And so just eat this afterwards and we'll see what happens. Sometimes it's a buffet though, right? And so I was thinking, I was like, oh, if you give people way beforehand, they're just going to eat less of the food. And so because of the decreased calorie load, maybe that might be the mechanism. But it doesn't really appear to uh, work in that way in these particular studies. Um, that said, a few of the studies showed that people actually ate more total energy, period, with the whey, just depending on the dose of whey. So the people are getting 70 grams of whey, for example, prior to going to a buffet, they actually ate more calories than those receiving the placebo. Um, so it doesn't look like this is solely sort of related to or decrease in energy reduction. But I think what it does maybe better than that is that it makes people full. And so the satiety ratings of whey protein are very high relative to an equal calorie sort of allotment of other lean protein sources. So for example, it's better than tuna. That's been directly measured. It's better than casein. That's been directly measured. And so you're like, hmm, I, d I do wonder, like if, we, if you're increasing feelings of fullness, maybe if that test meal isn't altered, right, the consumption there, thereof isn't, isn't altered, uh, what about what happens over the next 24 hours? That's kind of what I would like to see. But when you look at data, longer-term longitudinal studies on whey protein supplementation, you got results all over the place. Uh, it basically, if people consume whey protein, um, it's mostly weight neutral. Um, and some people have used it successfully for weight loss. That's been studied. And some people have used it successfully during calorie surpluses to gain weight. And so it's kind of all over the place. The way I kind of view whey is like maybe the sole exception we have to, as far as liquid calories that are pretty well compensated for later on meaning that people will, in general, not overeat by the same amount of calories they consume from whey protein. But that's not what you see, for example, with sugar-sweetened beverages or alcohol. The calorie content from there almost isn't compensated at all. And so that's how people end up in that you know, calorie surplus and gain weight from those two items, for example. Um, so yeah, I think it could be useful for appetite suppression. That might be useful. It is portable. It doesn't need to be prepared, uh, really. It is lower calorie than most lean sources of protein. So for example, WayRx is 90 calories for 20 grams of protein, and there's really not another 
source, like food source of protein that's going to stack up to that outside of like pure egg whites, you know, but everything else is going to have a little bit of fat in there, for example. And yeah, you're going to get higher amount of calories. The bigger thing though here is whey is so quickly absorbed. It's so quickly absorbed into the bloodstream that it seems to be satiating like relatively quickly. Whereas the other stuff that takes a longer period of time to absorb doesn't really, doesn't really do that. Um, in any case, my takeaway from all of this is that it looks like whey is, uh, before a meal is pretty potent at controlling blood sugar, particularly in those with abnormal blood sugar responses to meals. Uh, I don't think that you, people should perseverate over the insulin response because people will hear like, oh, insulin goes up from protein. I, sh- I shouldn't eat any protein. Like, I don't want my insulins to go. I don't want my insulin to spike. And it's like, yo, that's one of the way that things work. Also, insulin is a satiety hormone in the short term. So like, if you had a meal and there was no insulin response, you would be in big, big trouble. <laughs> that would be a, that would be a problem. Yeah, uh, and also, the ICU. <laughs> you would get to see Austin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I wouldn't uh, further just to kind of go back to our earlier discussion. I wouldn't perseverate over tightly controlling blood sugar within that sort of normal range, 100 to 140 after a meal. If you start getting higher than that. And for whatever reason you're measuring this, well, sure, that, that would be something to talk to your doctor about. But I don't think that people should be, you know, wearing these continuous glucose monitors if they don't have some sort of abnormal uh, uh, metabolic condition where we have good data that shows a benefit. And we did a whole podcast on that. It's episode 221. I've linked that in the description below. So after you're done listening to the research review, you can check that out. And uh, if you're wearing a continuous blood glucose monitor right now, and you don't have type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome or whatever, you just kind of want to know what your numbers are, and you think we're FOS, full of you-know-what, fine. Go on. I'm not going to, you know, talk you out of it, but, like, I also don't know what, what good it's doing for you. Um, any other comments on the on this way stuff? Nah, I think that's good for now. <laughs> you're going to start giving people – you're going to start prescribing people way pre-meal? Uh, I mean, I, it's something I would actually consider with some folks, particularly if they have relatively difficult to control blood sugars and maybe they're super reluctant to, you know, augment their use of meds or to adjust their diet or whatever the case is. This is a stress. I mean, like you said, 35 uh, milligram per deciliter uh, difference. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so that, that uh, kind of ties in nicely to our next discussion on actual supplements. Um, we're talking about fish oil, but the, some of the supplement info there is going to be useful for like, well, how would I even pick a good whey protein? Well, Listen on, and, and you'll get a, a good lay of the land here. <clears throat> so our third and final study here on episode 239 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, it's our September 2023 research review. The title is Health Claims and Doses of Fish Oil Supplements in the United States. This was by Asadorian uh, out of Dallas, Texas. It was published in the JAMA Cardiology uh, Journal in August of this year. All right, so we're going to talk about some background here. Fish oil describes a type of fat or lipid, which is really just a fancy chemical term, meaning it is a biological compound made up of a chain of carbon atoms that is insoluble in water, like many other fatty substances. Fish oil is a type of omega-3 polyunsaturated fat, which is another chemical term describing the way its chemical bonds are arranged. The majority of scientific research focuses on three omega-3 fats. The three omega fats are ALA, EPA, and DHA, ALA is present in plant oils such as flaxseed, soybean, and canola oils. DHA and EPA are present in fish, fish oils, and krill oils, but they are originally synthesized by microalgae. 
when fish consume phytoplankton that in turn consumed microalgae, they accumulate the omega-3s in their tissues. Omega-3 fats are present in several dietary supplement formulations, including, again, fish oil, krill oil, cod liver oil, and vegetarian products that contain algal oil. These fats are considered essential, which is a term used to describe substances that cannot be synthesized by the body and must therefore be consumed in the diet. In other words, we can't make our own omega-3 fats or omega-6 fats, for example, so we need to eat them. Consumption of DHA and EPA from food contributes very small amount to the total daily omega-3 intakes, about 40 milligrams in children and teens, and about 90 milligrams per day in adults. For reference, is about four to five ounces of cooked salmon. Fish oil is one of the most commonly used dietary supplements in the U.S., with about 7.8% of adults taking this and 1.1% of children using it. A deficiency in these essential fatty acids, either omega-3s or omega-6s, can cause rough, scaly skin and dermatitis, since we can't make our own. However, there are no known cutoff concentrations of DHA or EPA that reliably define deficiency. True deficiency of essential fatty acids in healthy individuals in the developed world basically does not happen, but has historically been observed in patients receiving parenteral nutrition, so it's like IV nutrition, that lack these fats. Fortunately, since such complications were recognized, standard formulations in the hospital, for example, now contain them. As far as the effects of fish oil on heart disease, the results are mixed. While we know that fish oil supplementation can lower triglyceride levels by about 15%, uh, and raised triglycerides is a risk factor for heart disease, the use of omega-3 supplements does not appear to have a robust effect on reducing the risk of most cardiovascular events in those without existing heart disease. It also appears uh, that the risk of atrial fibrillation goes up with fish oil supplementation. There are other types of fish oil, like ethyl ester forms, that may have a beneficial effect with a lower risk of atrial fibrillation. Supplementation is likely best restricted to those needing to further lower triglycerides, those with high-risk heart disease, and uh, you know, basically balancing that out against the risk of developing atrial fibrillation. And we would not recommend like an over-the-counter fish oil supplementation. We'd recommend either one of those ethyl ester forms or was it icos- uh, icosapental ester or something like that? Yes, icosapental. What's the – yeah. What's the uh, – do you remember the trade name on that? Yeah, so there's uh, Vasipa, which I think is uh, one of them. And then Laveza is like more regular fish oil, not this like specialized form of it. Yeah, I don't tend to use these all uh, super often in patients because a lot of the time, if they need medications to kind of reduce a high cardiovascular risk scenario, you know, somebody who's had prior, you know, heart attacks or has stents in their heart or, you know, issues like that, then often they need to be on a statin type medication. Um, And I would typically initiate other meds on them with more potent effects before I was to add something like fish oil. So I might add a ZMI. I might recommend if I can get a PCSK9 inhibitor for them before um, something like this. Although if I'm not able to get one of those things, then this may be what I have left to try on them or if they keep having events because despite doing all of those other things. So, yeah, I think that's important to take home. It's like people are like, Oh, fish oil is good for heart health. And we're like, okay, in very specific cases where people have continued or persistent elevations in triglycerides and they're at high risk of like having a major cardiac event because we can't get the triglycerides low enough with a statin, with a zetamibe, with potentially another PCSK9 inhibitor. They're on all of those or they can't, they don't have access to one of those, for example. At that point, we'd be thinking, hey, maybe fish oil, but it wouldn't be over-the-counter fish oil. It would be one of those specialized forms. Yeah. The I would just weigh rather, I would weigh rather, and I would actually have this conversation with some of these patients to like, do you eat fish? Could you eat fish? 
all right, please eat some fish. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of the story with heart disease. Uh, there's been claims about cancer risk reduction, and some evidence suggests that higher omega-3 intakes reduce the risk of breast and possibly colorectal cancers. A large clinical trial found that uh, omega-3 supplements, though, did not reduce the overall risk of cancer or the risk of breast prostate or colorectal cancers. So the result, the data here is actually mixed, uh, but additional study is needed. But I think we should just stop saying that fish oil likely reduces cancer risk. I don't know why that's out there in the ether, but I just think we should stop saying that. And overall, the benefit of fish oil supplementation is most likely limited to those with high risk heart disease and a secondary prevention sort of situation. So people who have already had some sort of adverse cardiac event uh, and those who require additional triglyceride lowering. Though this should probably be, again, that ethyl ester form, not over-the-counter uh, sort of fish oil. Otherwise, supplementation is less likely to confer significant health benefits for heart health, uh, especially when compared with dietary intake from food sources, so actually eating fish. Uh, just to me, the data does not support fish oil supplementation in general. Uh, with that background, let's take a look at this new study on fish oil supplements themselves, including what the manufacturers claim, what's in them, and what's not. So this study looked at 2,819 fish oil supplements that are on the market currently from the uh, including the nine largest fish oil manufacturers in the entire world. And they reviewed those for different labeling, like what's on the label, what do they say, and how does that uh, match up with sort of what they're allowed to say. And then they did a secondary analysis where 282 of these supplements were uh, uh, analyzed for dosing, so how much EPA and DHA were actually in the supplement themselves. Uh, this data on labeling was obtained from the Dietary Supplement Label Database, where manufacturers voluntarily submit labels for supplements sold in the United States in both text and photo form, and the dosing analysis was done in a laboratory. So let's look at the results. So starting with the claims. Regarding claims, fish oil supplements can actually contain two different types of health claims. One is called a qualified health claim, and the other is a structure function claim. Qualified health claims are statements regarding a supplement or food's potential for disease treatment or prevention, uh, and this all undergoes evidence review by the FDA. All of these qualified health claims include qualifying language reflecting lack of scientific consensus or uncertainty where applicable, uh, and so two FDA-approved quality health claims exist for fish oil. One is for coronary heart disease, and one is for blood pressure. The one from coronary heart disease is almost 20 years old. It's from 2004. And then the one for blood pressure is from 2019. Uh, so it looks something like this. Uh, supportive but not conclusive research shows that consumption of EPA and DHA omega-3 fatty acids may reduce the risk of coronary heart disease. Again, that's from 2004. And then the one for blood pressure from 2019, you could say something like, consuming EPA and DHA combined may help lower blood pressure in the general population and reduce the risk of hypertension. That's high blood pressure. However, the FDA has concluded that the evidence is inconsistent and inconclusive. The second type of claim is the structure function claim. This uh, basically describes the role of a nutrient or dietary ingredient intended to affect the structure or function in humans, but it cannot state that the supplement prevents, treats, or cures any disease. So this would be something like calcium builds strong bones or fiber maintains bowel regularity. For fish oil, it might be supports heart health, whatever that is. So there are two different types of claims, and that's kind of what this study looked at first. Uh, again, just like over 2,800 different labels. So of the 2,812 different labels that they reviewed, 2,082, that's 74%, included at least one health-related statement, but only 399 used an FDA-approved qualified health claim. So like 
almost 1,600 of them were like, ah, no one's going to care about this. We'll just say whatever. Uh, so some of the weirder claims uh, promotes joint comfort and mobility, maintains eye health, advanced cellular support and immune activation. Like, Austin, can you imagine getting a DM where you're like, hey, this supplement says that it supports advanced cellular <laughs> function and immune activation. Like, what would you say to that? Yeah, cellular support. I, I, I guess we could advertise like breathing air as like a way of providing advanced cellular support. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. WayRx supports oxidative respiration. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, interestingly, none of the supplements actually warned of the atrial fibrillation, fibrillation risk, which is just kind of interesting. I guess you would probably wouldn't want to put that on your supplement. Like if you were looking at two different fish oil supplements on the on the counter or whatever and one was like supports advanced cellular function and immune activation and the ne one next to it says may give you afib You're like <laughs> i'm getting the advanced cellular support that's yeah, the one I i'm mean, getting at the same time i guess if they're not required to label these kind of things then why would they um but with the level you know of scrutiny that people are giving these labels a label may as well say you know promotes, you know, uh, uh, rapid, you know, heart rates or something like that. <laughs> Talking about atrial fibrillation, <laughs> yeah. people would be like, oh, that sounds good to me. Like, <laughs> I want that. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the labeling thing was just a mess. I was like, oh my gosh, what are these people doing? But then if you're in the supplement game, if you're in the supplement business, the businesses sell supplements. And so how would you do that? Oh, eye health. That seems like something people might be looking for. Joint comfort and mobility. That probably, you know, sells stuff. There's probably focus groups here that are like, when you hear joint mobility and comfort, yeah, what sort of thoughts? Fuzzies. Yeah. Yeah. When you hear <laughs> rapid heart rate, don't like. <laughs> Got it. Uh, so labeling stuff, it's just, just wild to me that only 399 of the 2,812 labels reviewed used one of these qualified health claims. And the FDA is even giving people keys to the city. They're like, look, man, here are the two you can use. We're not even going to review the one that's 20 years old. And if anything, data has come out to support, to reject. You can use it. Still use it. And they're like, nah, we'll make yeah. up our own. Yeah. All right. Uh, the dosing stuff was wild. So out of the 282 unique fish oil supplements reviewed, 27 of them were excluded due to lack of sufficient dosing information on the label. So just 27 of them were like, nah, we gave up. We just don't have enough dosing information. And so it's like on the front of it, it says like, oh, yeah, maintains eye health. You don't even look at the back to be like, well, I wonder how much fish oil is actually in this thing. Uh, of the 255 that remained, 91% contained both EPA and DHA. The average dose included 340 milligrams of EPA and 270 milligrams of DHA. But there were huge ranges in between, you know, across these different supplements that were actually evaluated. Uh, on the low end, 73 milligrams combined EPA and DHA, all the way up to 1,100 milligrams of combined EPA and DHA. Uh, only 24 of the 255 uh, supplements contained enough EPA and DHA that's actually been shown to reduce triglycerides, which is 2,000 milligrams of EPA and DHA. And so it's like, guys, even if you were dead set on taking fish oil because you're like, yeah, I do have high triglycerides and I do think, you know, this would be beneficial to me. Like almost none of the supplements actually contain enough to do anything. But you are exposing yourself to risk of atrial fibrillation, other contamination or whatever. And you're supporting these companies that are putting dumb things on the label and getting away with it, which just annoys me to no end. So the way I take this is just the same. It's the same sort of analysis of the supplement market in general. Like 75% of Americans report taking dietary supplements 
in the previous year. This is a $35 billion a year sort of market. Okay, a lot of money going around here. In the United States, dietary supplements are classified as a food and therefore not subject to pre-market testing, uh, but they're still regulated by the FDA after they've come to market. The FDA is involved in some pre-market regulation because they established the Good Manufacturing Practices, GMP, in an effort to limit supplement contamination, verify accuracy of labeling, and set standards for monitoring and reporting adverse events associated with supplement use. That said, not every company actually adheres to these GMP sort of guidelines. A 2013 FDA report showed that approximately 70% of supplement manufacturers were in violation of good manufacturing practices, and additionally, 28% failed to even register. 20% of all dietary supplements available for purchase are likely contaminated, though this is likely a significant underestimation due to underreporting lack of research. And that means if they're contaminated, they contain things that are not on the label, potentially illicit substances that may hurt you badly, not just give you AFib, which is bad in and of itself, but like liver failure. And it's like, yep. can you imagine you're just taking See like tumor, <laughs> turmeric, you're like, yeah, this is good for me, like wound healing or whatever it is. And uh, you end up with needing a liver transplant just because there's a contaminated supplement. Yeah, I've seen that happen from pre-workout before. So it can be, uh, it can be a thing that happens. Yep. And so that's just contamination. But as far as the labeling, almost half of all supplements are incorrectly labeled. But again, that's likely an underestimation due to being underreported, lack of funding for you know adequate research and whatnot. Uh, and fish oil supplements are not immune from these issues. The labels are obviously trash. They make unsupported claims using incorrect doses and are not matching the dose contained with the dose advertised. That's why there's these huge ranges of dosing between fish oil. And so it's, and that's the same, you know, the same thing we see across the supplement industry uh, in general. So what do we do with this? First, I would be wary of any sort of vague structure function claims. If there's like health, the word health after a particular organ or tissue, I would just assume that to be BS. If someone says, if a supplement says supports heart health, joint health, brain health, uh, you know, what else? Skin health. You're like, what does that even mean? It's just nonsense. Immediately, I'd be like, I'm not giving these people my money because this is probably trash and they, I deserve better. The world deserves better. Second, look to make sure that there's some sort of testing involved so you know that it's not contaminated and that the label has been verified. So you'd look for a GMP label, like there's a, just a logo on the supplements that they actually registered with the FDA. They're adhering to good manufacturing practices. And that there's another label, a separate label that shows they've been third-party tested couple different vendors that do this. Uh, we use informed consent, informed for sport. Uh, other vendors include USP and NSF. They effectively batch test every batch of supplements that a manufacturer produces to say, oh yeah, not only is the label accurate, but there's no contamination in here. And then finally, only take supplements that have proven sort of benefits compared to the risk profile. And so, you know, you would want robust evidence showing, yep, this can improve performance, improve health, can improve whatever you're looking for, um, and that that has a satisfactory risk-benefit profile. And to me, fish oil really isn't one of them. Again, yeah, it can lower triglycerides, um, and you know, in individuals who've already had some sort of major adverse cardiac event, uh, so secondary prevention, you could consider using fish oil, but it wouldn't be over-the-counter fish oil. It'd be one of the specialized forms. And so I don't think fish oil is a supplement that has enough evidence to recommend people use it. Austin, any other sort of fish oil hot takes? Yeah, comes great when you eat it in the form of fish. 
<laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. So that is a wrap on episode 239 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. It's been our September 2023 research review. Again, um, if for next week's episode, please send us your questions to media at barbellmedicine.com. We'll be reviewing those and putting together a best of list. And Dr. Baraki and I will hammer those out. Uh, again, with respect to the ads, Yep, there's ads before and at the end of every podcast. Uh, we're probably working on some ad-free options for those who just cannot take being barraged by ads, but we're really just trying to offset some of our production costs here so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness and uh, take some uh, production time off my plate. We can just focus on the content. We really appreciate you guys listening. Please leave us a five-star rating and a review um, before you guys go anywhere, and we'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Mm-hmm.